0: You're listening to the World of Higher Education Podcast, Season 1, Episode 7.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Alex Usher, and this is the World of Higher Education Podcast. Today, my guest is Yilin Chiang, author of Study Gods, How the New Chinese Elite Prepare for Global Competition, which was published in 2022 by Princeton University Press. It's a really extraordinary work of ethnography, following a group of students from a pair of elite Beijing secondary schools as they make their way towards China's extremely challenging Gaokao tests and on to university, both in China and beyond. I reviewed it a few months ago, and I was so pleased that Yilin could join us on the pod. To me, the book is interesting not only as a window into the lives of some extremely driven young students whose lives revolve around high-stakes testing, And I recommend pairing this book with the Indian Netflix show Coda Factory if you haven't seen it already. There are some interesting parallels. But it also is a means to understand how these students come to understand complex ideas like merit, excellence, prestige, and then order their values around them. Her description of how students get placed in a social status system running from losers to study gods is itself worth the price of the book. What I found most interesting in this interview was when we came to the issues of ideology and values. How does an allegedly communist system force this level of competition and status stratification on students in the first place? And why don't parents rebel at the high financial and social costs the system imposes on them, like mothers quitting their jobs to devote themselves to full time care of teens so they can maximize their study time? Her answers, that China's less communist than it seems, and that parenting values change a bit in families with only a single child, were I thought pretty astute. But judge for yourself. Have a listen. <laughs> Yilin, welcome, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you. So the book that you've written is based on work you did observing students at two elite secondary schools, both, I think, in Beijing, which you've pseudonymized as pinnacle and capital. What can you tell us about these schools? How easy is it to get in? What are the fees like? What amenities do they have that other schools don't?
2: Alex, that's a lot of things to answer. So these two schools are public schools in the western side of Beijing. Um, Because they're public schools, so the fees are very little. It's about 750 Chinese yuan or renminbi per semester. I think that was 10 years ago. Nowadays, it's probably about 800 per semester. Of course, students who go to those schools can't just pay the fees, they need to test in to those schools. So these schools have a Zhongkao, which is a uh, high school entrance exam that, that they use to select students. And students need to score among the top in the city to get in. There are a, a few quotas that um, students could go in if they have scored a few points below the cutoff, and those students would have to pay a so-called school selection fee. It's about It depends on the school and it also depends on how much points that the students need to make up for. But this is it's really not that much compared to compare the other international schools. And so parents usually are happy to pay it, but the slots are very few. So it's sort of like a first come, first serve, or depending on what string the parents could pull. Other than that, I think uh, the school's amenities varies quite significantly between Capitol and Pinnacle. So Pinnacle is a school that I would think goes for more of an elegant style. It has a historical vibe inside. Um, the campus is not that big, but it has Bien Jones and lots of calligraphy. It has large sculptures and I mean, it even has pavilions inside the campus. Um, Capitol is quite different. Capitol was established later than Pinnacle. It goes for more of a cosmopolitan vibe. I mean, the huge campus is modeled after Harvard University with red brick buildings and lots of open space. Capitol campus could even fit a roller coaster, which the students asked the school to break in to the campus for them um, during a celebratory event. So those two schools are pretty much elite. They're not that similar in terms of campus style, um, but overall, because they're public schools, so the fees and admission policies are all quite comparable.
1: Okay, and how did you get access to these schools to do your research? And once you were inside, how did you choose which students to follow?
2: I went into the school by asking friends and family friends to introduce me to people who knew Uh, teachers in the school. Very quickly, I realized that teachers alone were not enough to get access to the schools. So then I had to ask some friends to introduce me to the school principal and ask for permission to enter the schools going into the schools actually wasn't that hard it was more difficult to stay inside the school because a lot of times i think that oh i'm there to do research and then i'll leave upon like a month or a semester but in but in fact i was trying to stay for over a year and so i had to build a really good relationship with the with the homeroom teachers that the principal introduced me to and those homeroom teachers actually introduced me to some Selected students who they thought were best present this school. I only asked the teachers to, to um, introduce me to students who were elite, meaning that they were from uh, rich families or they, they came from affluence. But the teacher has added other things, such as, oh, they think this person needs to be uh, nice, this person needs to be sociable, or at least outgoing. And most importantly, they need to be high performers, so as to you know, bring honor and glory to the school through research participation. I then got to know other students through these selected students introduced to me.
1: So the context for all of this, for these schools and for you know, the work the students are doing in in your book is this obsession that, uh, you know, that the elite have with getting into a very small set of high prestige Chinese institutions in particular, but I guess not exclusively Tsinghua and Beda. And, you know, for the most part, admission to these institutions is regulated through results in the Gaokao, uh, the, the national examinations. Can you describe these exams for us and how institutions like Capital and Pinnacle prepare students for them?
0: Sure.
2: The Gaokao is an annual high stakes exam that students who want to go to any Chinese universities has to participate in. The Gaokao is usually two days. In certain provinces, it's three days. And so during those days, students will be tested on six different subjects. All of the students have to be uh, tested on Chinese, English, and math. Students who want to major in humanities or social sciences subjects then will be tested in history, geography, and political studies, while the students who want to major in other like engineering or natural sciences or even uh, medicine, they would have to take Uh, The other three subjects, which are, I think, biology, chemistry, and physics. Students will then be ranked according to their scores in this gaokao. And then afterwards, um, they will submit a choice list of the colleges, including the majors that they want to major in. And then it would be a sorting system that is automated. About a month later, they will receive their match or the automated system generations results in the mail. And then they will know where they're going to.
1: You also describe various ways that students can game the system and get extra credit or extra points through things like the Mathematics Olympiads. I found some of those passages were quite interesting. They reminded me of the TV show Coda Factory, which is in a very similar uh, situation only in India. Can you tell us a little bit about these workarounds or these these sources of extra points?
2: So China, I think, actually wants to move slightly away from the uh, High, the total high stakes exams, they want to recognize student diversity and other ways um, uh, in, in student selection. So they have this system, it's a really complicated system that changes all the time, in which students who participate in these things could gain extra points that counts towards the Gaokao. One of them is the exemplary behavior, meaning if they have a very high GPA, they're good students, then they could get up to 20, 10 or 20 points that counts towards the Gaokao. Another is ethnic minority, if they claim to be ethnic minorities and show proof or evidence of that, it's more like an affirmative action that they would also get additional points. Another one that most of the students take is the um, additional tests. So Qinghua, Beida, and most other universities in China want to select students who prioritize them. And so these students, if they should they choose to do that, they could take an additional test three months before the Gaokao, specifically for that type of university. And then if they score high enough in that test, uh, Tsinghua or Beida or the other university will then give them extra points that count towards the Gaokao.
1: Well, we need to take a short break right now. We'll be right back.
0: Micro-credentials continue to be the most talked about area of innovation in post-secondary education. Higher Education Strategy Associates, in partnership with the Strategic Council, has released a new report on microcredentials in the Canadian marketplace. A comprehensive analysis of national and international trends, practices, and policies around microcredentials, as well as a national survey of employers and employees in Canada. If you're a university decision-maker tasked with maximizing innovation and in value for micro this is a report you can't afford to miss. Purchase the report today and gain access to the launch webinar on March 28th. For more information, please contact us at info at
1: And we're back. Yilin, you say there's an implicit four-stage hierarchy among students between groups called Shui Shen, Shui Ba, Shriba, Shrecha, and Shui Ho, Study gods, study holics, underachievers and losers. These are really effective terms, by the way. Tell us about those groupings and how students come to be unofficially assigned to one of them.
2: Well, let me just define the, the, the four tiers first. Study gods, or xueshen, are the students who don't seem to be studying, and they have really high test scores. Uh, below them are study holics or the xueba. They are students who also get very high test scores, but they seem to study all the time, or they put a lot of effort into their academic performances. Study gods and study holics together are the high status groups in these schools. Moving on to the lower tier, we start with the underachievers or the xuejia. These students are students who don't have very high test scores and also they don't seem to be studying hard. Um, At the very bottom of the school hierarchy are the losers, which is what the students call them, the xue ruo, as in they study very hard, but they still don't get high test scores. So this is a hierarchy that is primarily based on test scores above everything else. And secondarily, whether one seems to be studying or not.
1: So I was really interested by the discussion in the book, the distinction that students drew between study holics and study gods. And as you say, it's about effortlessness. And I think I got the impression from reading it that a lot of students sort of put that down to innate ability, right? That the study gods were naturally gifted, therefore they didn't have to study. But it definitely wasn't due to anything like socioeconomic privilege. And it's interesting because in, you know, in the United States increasingly, or, or North America and, and Europe, there's a lot of discourse around socioeconomic privilege and educational outcomes. Why do you think the focus is on innateness in China and not on things like privilege as it is in some other parts of the world?
2: That's a really good question. I actually think that these students are all very privileged and they know it. But inside such a community when everyone is privileged and they're competing among themselves, they no longer see privilege as that important. And I think by grouping a group of students who come from affluence, who grew up in safe and secure neighborhoods, who really didn't do anything other than focus on their studies, they actually don't really recognize privilege. And so that whole set of discourse becomes off the radar for them. And then they could justify all of their efforts or all of their uh, results by their so-called innate ability, which actually they even themselves have some difficulty understanding what that means.
1: Interesting. The book doesn't just look at the status hierarchy among Chinese universities. I mean, that's there, right? Tsinghua and Beta are at the top. But students are also navigating kind of a global hierarchy of excellence either if they go abroad for undergraduate school or if they do a first degree locally and then leave for a graduate degree. How do they understand which global institutions are elite and which are not? How do they make sense of that? What's the epistemology of elite? Is it just rankings or is it something more?
2: I'm really sad to say that, yes, it is primarily rankings and not just any ranking. It has to be U.S. News rankings.
1: Really? Really? So not even a domestic ranking with Shanghai, the, the, the academic rankings of world universities, that's not it. It really is U.S. news, huh?
2: It is really U.S. news. I think it's because most of the students want to go to the U.S. So they think that U.S. news with the word U.S., at least it might be a more influential thing, um, at least in U.S. domestic schools. So that's the primary thing that they go to. Even their parents check it out.
1: Yeah, Interesting. So, once students are abroad, do they find it difficult to adjust to different styles of teaching and learning or even, I guess more broadly, different definitions of merit and criteria for how to get ahead either in academics or the workplace? How does that transition work?
2: Well, let me begin by saying that the schools actually prepare these students really well for going abroad. These students had no problem adjusting to full English environments because a lot of them had 100% English classroom instructions but the uh, american or western way of high level engagement in the classrooms were quite shocking to them and some of them were horrified at first they said that they couldn't really keep up with the pace of conversation flow not because they couldn't follow like intellectually but that they were too slow to respond and by the time that they felt comfortable speaking up the conversation had already moved on so over time i think most of them reported adjustment uh, strategies such as first of all they could speak first no matter what and then they could guide the conversation flow and have participation another type was to complete all the readings so they would be prepared for any type of conversation that would be more of a study holic strategy or you know a lot of people just continue to do what they used to do they still don't really participate in classroom uh, discussions but they try to do very well in tests and they spend a lot of effort in the final projects or papers
1: the environment that you describe is i wouldn't say it's cutthroat but it's very competitive so status and and achievement are at the forefront of everybody's lives all the time i found it interesting that the words marxist and leninist don't appear in the book because you know in the west a communist or a socialist approach to education would never countenance this kind of competition and the stratification of students that you describe why does China tolerate or even encourage this approach? Is it as simple as saying, well, that's just what a Confucian heritage gets you? Or is there something more complex and ideological at work here?
2: The idea that Marxism Lenin is were not really uh, prevalent in the school was actually surprising to me, too. I didn't expect that when I first entered the Chinese high schools. But then I was reminded in literature that a lot of scholars disagree over whether China is truly a communist society and some of them find it to be a quite capitalist in many ways. I think, nonetheless, that these students are a very special group, that they were groomed to become future leaders who would represent China in international society. And I think globally, we do live in a capitalist world. And so at least at that time of the study, which was in 2012 to 2014, these students were heavily encouraged to behave and think in ways that fit with the so-called commonly held international values or capitalist values. And actually, I think that their parents think that this... Uh, type of training would give them the tools to succeed in global competition.
1: So clearly, China's capable of producing large cohorts of extremely capable, disciplined, hardworking young people. That's what these schools are churning out. But there are some costs to doing this, not financial, perhaps, but social and emotional costs, not just to the students, but to their families. You talk a lot about the toll of this on mothers, which I thought was pretty interesting. Could you tell us about the costs and why families think this kind of education is worth it?
2: First of all, the the families seem to be discounting the fact that it costs them so much, they don't even talk about the cost, they don't register that there are emotional, social and financial burdens to training uh, or to grooming their children like that. I think it's because these students, one of one of the reasons is because these students are so called the only hope of the entire family, they are the, the single child. And that, that the parents have no choice but to hope for the best and do everything possible to help this one child succeed but on the other hand when you mention costs i really do think that they they should recognize a lot of this cost the, the students are incredibly burdened they are in very high levels of pressure and the, the the parents also don't do very well in the in the last year of of high school just because they need to support their their children at all costs and so I can't really say if this is worth it, but I think at least um, in my study, the families don't seem to be re- acknowledging this and they're doing exact, uh, the parents are doing exactly what the country might want them to do. And the children are also trying to do what the families, their countries and the teachers are telling them what they should be doing.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, you talk about mothers you know, giving up their job for a year or two, so they can always be on hand to help the uh, the students, or maybe even purchasing a, an apartment that's closer to the school. I mean, those are really significant costs. Last question. Look, are you, this clearly took you years to do. I mean, this is, you know, as you read this, it's, a, it's very noticeable how long you followed these students and how much effort it must have taken to sort of keep track of all those loose ends for so long. If you could go back and do this research again, what would you do differently?
2: I often get asked about this a lot, and I think long and hard about it. Looking back, I really feel that I did my best in this project, so I can't truly really imagine a wholly different project, but I would have liked to dive into the school histories a bit more. I would have interviewed the school principals. I would have dived into the school archival data um, to see how the schools were established, um, what were the founding like a principles were, I think this would have given me a better comparative and historical insight of how elites were groomed in China, because this study is about how elites are groomed in China for global competition in the 21st century. But a lot of these schools, especially Pinnacle, was established in the 20th century specifically to make Chinese uh, intellectuals competitive in global society. And that was about a hundred years ago. It was a very different time back then. I would have liked to do more comparisons uh, by tracing those school histories. But well, maybe one day I can do it after visiting. <laughs>
1: okay. Yilin Chang, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It remains for me to thank the show's excellent producers, Tiffany McLennan and Sam Pufek, and of course, you the listener for tuning in. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please send us a line at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. Join me next week for episode eight, when our guest will be Dr. Ethan Schrum, author of The Instrumental University, Education in the Service of the National Agenda Since World War II. Bye for now.
0: The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production. Produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek. Hosted by Alex Usher. Music by T-Bless and The Professionals. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.